Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre. Andre, you do anything fun recently? I was watching, I was applying for jobs today and watching WWE's Crown Jewel, the World Wrestling Entertainment Show in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the show's faced some controversies in the past over, you know, doing business in Saudi Arabia, but it was an interesting show. There was a hell in the cell match, tables, ladders, and chairs, a guy tackled another man off a 15-foot ramp. It was pretty epic. And, uh, you know, I'm not a very big wrestling fan, but that does sound uh, pretty epic, Andre. Saudi Arabia is uh, is really fascinating at the moment. There's this whole Riyadh season, this Riyadh season 2021, over 7,000 events that are happening. And it's really, I think, an effort by uh, the Saudi government to not only attract people to come to Saudi Arabia, but also to um, inject some sort of entertainment and culture into uh, Saudi society, which, as I think most people know, has for a long time been very closed off and has not been allowed to go towards the more, you know, westernized music and entertainment and plays and shows and even music. I know Pitbull was performing in Saudi Arabia. Pitbull, yeah, Pitbull. Oh man! <laughs> Interestingly enough, the Undertaker was actually at that concert, which you'd think he would have been oh, at the, the Undertaker at the WWE event. Oh, the Undertaker was at the Pitbull concert yesterday, but he wasn't at WWE Crown Jewel. Okay, I'm I'm confused. Why was he not at the wrestling show? But why was he at Pitbull? I I, I have no <laughs> I don't have any answers there. Um, but it it's, again, it's it's, it's interesting. It's sort of interesting because at the show they had like uh, they had two matches that were just women. Uh, there was a thirty-minute three-woman match, which was really interesting. And of course, their bodies are all covered up, but the hair was sort of let loose and all of that. So I, I mean, that's sort of interesting to me. And uh, I mean, my, maybe as you said, Ryan, indicative of the approach that the Crown Prince is trying to take with Saudi Arabia. Of course, we had an episode with Justin Sheck. Uh, about the crown prince and his rise and of course we've seen all the controversies around the Khashoggi murder and some other things but it it is interesting I I did hear very recently that Saudi Arabia was trying to promote their own airlines or create an airlines that would rival Emirates, Etihad, Qatar Airways I mean those are the three big airways that really connect I mean at least for me they connect Los Angeles to Sri Lanka and South Asia and I think Saudi's trying to also enter that sphere and brand itself as a tourist destination, interestingly. Well, I mean, certainly from, you know, for, for Muslims around the world, they are a destination. Um, you know, Mecca and Medina are, of course, in Saudi Arabia. And so you have, um, the, you know, the, the religious Muslims who go on pilgrimage. That, that of course, is a huge part of, of travelers going to Saudi Arabia. But they're also, they're, you know, they certainly are not the UAE, right? They're not Dubai. Yeah. They're not Abu Dhabi. They don't have that sort of lifestyle that maybe some no non-Muslims would go to Saudi Arabia outside of the religious reasonings, but more so for tourism, um, traditional tourism. So that I think is something they're trying, they're attempting to do. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see. I mean, they they certainly have the the wealth uh, to put together a fabulous airline. I mean, I would try it out. Yeah, yeah, raising all our gas prices by jacking up the price of oil and all of that. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> so they have a lot of wealth. But uh, you know, another country that's really interesting, Ryan. If you want to talk about tourism and a very sort of strict culture, is the Maldives, mm. right? Uh, 
the Maldives, it's I think it is Sharia. It's very Islamic, but of course, I think all the resorts and all the beach places are all very much operating on their own sort of law system for tourists. You can, you know, go in bikinis and shirtless and all of that stuff and whatever, and they can have a nice Western vacation. But the government itself is very Islamic, very Islamic, which is very interesting, like very conservative in that sense. It is very, I mean, that's, I mean, we've seen this over the past 30 to 40 years of, of countries that are very conservative and it's not just Muslim countries. I mean, it's, it's countries, you know, a variety of countries that are, are looking to economic opportunities. And again, tourism is a huge um, moneymaker for a lot of countries who don't have other resources. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it certainly makes sense for, for the Maldives to do that, but I don't, it doesn't really square with, with their own law, which is fascinating. It it is really fascinating, and I mean, it's the Saudi story is going to be really interesting in the coming years, especially under this crown prince, who again is very controversial and is a bit of a bloodlusty guy when you talk about how he's put down his opponents. But anyway, Ryan, uh, you talk about economic opportunity. Uh, there's one country that's not really seeing a lot of economic opportunity right now, and that's Haiti. We've had Ambassador Susan Page come on to talk about Haiti. Uh, she had worked in Haiti quite a bit. And very. And this week, we actually saw this gang basically kidnap 17 American missionaries, and I believe their families. Uh, and just today, actually, as we're recording, the leader of that gang has threatened to kill the hostages if he doesn't get what he wants. I mean, this is a, a huge problem. Of course, the, the you know the United States has attempted to get a lot of Americans out of Haiti. Of course, not only because of the political instability, but also I mean, there was an earthquake. There's a, a whole lot of issues that Haiti faces and has been facing for many years. Um, but I mean, these are these are missionaries, right? They go to these countries to do that type of work, and so. It's it's very sad to see. I mean, gangs, as we've talked about with with uh, a variety Taking of people, over. yeah, they have taken over. Particularly the, the capital in Port-au-Prince, uh, they exercise a lot of control outside of you know the main kind of uh, of urban areas. And so uh, the U.S. I mean, while you know we we do not really on the surface negotiate uh, the releases of of individuals with quote unquote terrorists, this gets into kind of a murky area where I'm sure we'll be. Uh, working with with the Haitian government to try to find some sort of 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 deal where we can get these Americans yeah. released because at the end of the day I mean uh, gang members want you know very you know finite things either it's it's money or some sort of other you know tangibles um this is not kind of the instance where it's 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 not ideo- ide- ideological like we see in, in you know more uh, terrorism-related cases in other parts of the world, but nonetheless, it is still very scary. Yeah, and, and this particular gang in part, this particular gang uh, is called Four Hundred Mawazo. Uh, they are believed to be responsible for the kidnapping. Uh, they are believed to be responsible for the death threats. Uh, there was a funeral, I think, for five soldiers, five quote-unquote soldiers uh, from this gang, and this was where that gang leader of Four Hundred Mawazo threatened the lives of the Americans. And according to this New York Times article that talks about these these missionaries, actually, these people, these Americans were missionaries who were kidnapped. Uh, this article says that they have basically controlled half of Haiti very recently and that they're essentially operating like a de facto government. Their own courts, police stations, and even taxes 
it's it's very interesting and obviously goes to show you the weakness of the Haitian government. Again, we remember President Moise was assassinated. Uh, I don't believe we know exactly who the culprits were for the assassination, right? Or it's still being no. very much not that I've seen. There was, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And I don't think you know many outside of, of you know the Haitian uh, security services and police have kind of been able to see all the all the actual evidence. But I mean, yeah, I mean be, after the the assassination of the of Haiti's president, I mean it has been a lot of chaos inside of Haiti, and of, and when you have these kind of power vacuums, you see gangs and other kind of organized crime rise to the occasion. And that's, you know, in, in the sense, you know, it's a very pejorative way to put it. Um, but yeah, they are, they're filling the gaps. And that's not only by, you know, crime and extortion, all these things, but also they do provide services. And that's the interesting part. When you see these, the organized crime provides services for communities because they're trying to legitimize themselves as, as leading it. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you, you had to figure out like the popular appeal of perhaps of some gangs or the way of life that being on the street and, you know, joining a gang is in some of these countries, especially when people don't really have any other alternative in terms of, you know, resources or employment opportunities. And Ryan, I just sort of, sort of want to highlight this missionary group. Uh, they belong with Christian Aid Ministries. There are a couple of children in there. There is an eight-month-old, a three-year-old, and a six-year-old, and two young teenagers. Uh, they're from a very conservative sect of Christianity. Some of them are Amish, some of them are Mennonite, uh, and some of them are Anabaptist. So they're from a range of U.S. states. But this is a very interesting group itself, probably doing some interesting work with terms in terms of missionaries. But... Uh, just, I mean, I hope they get out okay, and I hope the U.S. government is working with, I mean, whatever is left of the Haitian government, to be frank, whatever they can cobble together. And, I mean, it's, it's sort of shocking that the U.S. and other countries did not, I guess, do anything, you know? I mean, uh, this is a very volatile situation. Obviously, there's travel alerts and stuff to not go to Haiti. But you would think that, something like this would have been preventable, you know? I mean, that's the challenge, but there's so many different things occurring around the world. I mean, Haiti was just not a priority. I mean, that's, that's I think, as, as basic as you can put it. And so when it's not prioritized and resources are put in other, and, and time and resources are put into other areas, I mean, there's little that the U.S. can kind of do unless we're really ready to commit resources and, and really personnel uh, on the ground, but also, you know, economic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it should be a priority because right now, Ryan, we were just talking about this earlier, but we are see we've seen, I think, the largest uh, what is it border apprehension level in years. Uh, we had what one point seven million people apprehended at the border by border patrol. Many of them are Haitians, many are Venezuelan, and from a lot of other countries that are really facing a lot of dire economic straits. Yeah, we're, we're seeing um, another grouping of migrants heading, um, seemingly heading towards the United States again. They are gathered in in Mexico near the Mexico-Guatemala border. And as you said, Andre, I mean, they're, they're, they're Haitian, they're Venezuelan, they're Cuban. They're also from other Latin American countries. And we've, Andre, you and I have talked about this time and time again. When the situations in these countries are so dire, whether it's political, whether it's economic, whether it's social, these, these migrants have nothing to do other than to leave because the situation on the ground there is just 
it's so difficult and so dangerous for them that they see no better option than to try to seek refuge and asylum in the United States. And so a lot of these um, are are seeking asylum in the United States. And and as 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 I think everyone knows, I mean the the border crisis is real, and we've all seen those pictures. And it really is devastating. And the United States, you know, has a system in place, but it's it's very difficult to manage that just that mass of people in an effective way. I mean, it's just it's it's a manpower issue. It's also a system issue, and it really is a policy issue. And there's I'm, I don't really have you know a, a a solution for it, but it's certainly something that I mean, Kamala Harris is the vice president was put in charge managing this and we really have not seen any results yeah i i don't i feel like i remember we talked about her trip quite a while back and it wasn't a very good trip for her politically i mean obviously people were scared of trump uh biden they sort of saw him as a friendlier figure so more people came to the border because they thought it might be easier perhaps but also a lot of the crises have really flared up in recent months just happened to be in 2021 with COVID and the economy. Uh, Obviously, we've been talking about Haiti. The Venezuelan economy is really going downhill. Uh, There are some people coming in from Brazil, and we will be talking about Brazil in a little bit, Ryan. But Brazil's had a lot of political friction and chaos, especially with COVID and so on. And again, a lot of these Latin American countries were frankly countries that the U.S. was involved with in terms of foreign policy and intelligence operations decades ago, decades ago. I mean, you watch Narcos, for example, you might understand a little bit, even though Narcos is likely dramatized. But I mean, there is some sense of Uh, culpability we have with regards to how some of these countries have fared. And again, uh, I mean, one solution would be, you know, heighten the amount of foreign aid and really engage with these countries to figure out how we can how we can solve the problems, work with these countries, solve the problems at home. So then these people don't feel like they have to come to America, right? We want to fix the solution, like a Marshall Plan, for example, for Latin America would be very prudent. And I think would be an opportunity for the United States to really, you know, build its image as well, rebuild its image in many ways. But I mean, yeah, it's just uh, it's just a disaster on all fronts. Yeah. I mean, I know Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken was in the region, um, I think this past week. And so I, I didn't actually see it come up in any readouts, um, but I'm sure it was discussed at, at some point. And so it's uh, certainly a crisis that needs to be addressed and we'll keep uh, talking about it week over week as it uh, likely isn't going to go away anytime soon. So one of those countries I mentioned, Brazil, has been in some interesting political times to President Jair Bolsonaro, who is a big uh, anti-vaxxer. Uh, he was charged with mass murder by, I think, a Senate committee in Brazil for basically being responsible for a lot of the deaths that have occurred with regards to COVID. So he's being charged with mass murder by a committee in the Senate. Apparently, his son was on that committee and voted against the report, but his popularity has really taken a nosedive. This is also a guy who's up for re-election. He has said he's already making these populist claims, of course, that the election is going to be rigged as it always is when a far right winger loses an election. But this guy seems to be losing it. I mean, he is trying to hold on to the power that is clearly falling um, away from him. And so, I mean, listen, he completely mishandled COVID. I mean, Brazil had 
600,000 deaths, the second highest in the world, only second to the United States. And he's facing uh, an election next year that he will very likely lose. And with that, I mean, he's then subjected to a whole lot of, whether it's domestic prosecution, also maybe potentially international prosecution. I know that they are or alleging crimes against humanity for the mishandling of COVID in this Senate report. And so that could open him up to, I mean, international the criminal courts um, and, and prosecution under that, which, um, I mean, yeah, that's jail time. Yeah. You think our guys were sort of rejecting the existence of a pandemic or COVID? <laughs> Bolsonaro takes the cake for rejecting COVID, as in rejecting COVID, as in denying uh, the threats of COVID and so on. I mean, my goodness, it's just horrifying. And uh, Bolsonaro, of course, I mean, he's a wannabe dictator at this point. He is a wannabe dictator. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty pretty clear, but I, I imagine he will not be um, leading Brazil for much longer. Um, Andre, this isn't a very kind of light, light um, edition of What in the World, and I do want to talk about uh, the murder of British MP David Amos um, who was stabbed to death at a constituency meeting um, in his in in his hometown, and so um, really just a, a really sad story. Over forty years of service um, that this member of parliament had, and had all sorts of recognition from from the British government, from the Queen for his service, and they are his community is now looking to erect a statue in his honor. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the charge. A 25-year-old was charged with this murder and also preparing acts of terrorism. Uh, the police have said that there are religious and ideological motives uh, for this. And uh, I mean, Britain, the UK has dealt with terrorism in a variety of fashions, whether it's Islamic extremism or other you know types of right-wing extremism, um, even related to you know the Northern Ireland issue. And uh, it really is quite sad to see that uh, someone would take the life of a member of parliament. Yeah, I mean, again, while we have made a lot of progress against the Islamic State and other forms of Islam, Islamic uh, extremism, you will get these lone wolves who do commit these acts, especially as terrorism becomes, it's a, it's a global issue, right? You see people being radicalized at home and so on. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do not want to move on to uh, Libya. We're going to I mean, completely turn away. And I want to talk about uh, the upcoming elections. So there are December elections in Libya. I think we, it's very clear. I mean, after the fall of, of Gaddafi, I mean, Libya, just Muammar Gaddafi, of course, went into just utter chaos with international actors from Russia to Turkey uh, getting involved. But the latest kind of, rest, I mean, fascinating update is that uh, Muammar Gaddafi's only surviving son, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, is potentially looking for some sort of power play in this election. And he is... Um, and, you know, the ICC is trying to pursue charges of war crimes against him, but he's in Libya, so they uh, cannot do that. And no one's heard from him since 2014. It's been years. So does he have a good chance of winning or? Well, I mean, so this process is managed by the United Nations and, and it's all, there's a lot oh. of stakeholders here. And so I'm going to say that the chances of him having any sort of success are slim to none, but it is interesting that he is, you know, reemerging. Very interesting. Well, I mean, it's again, it's it's very it's it's the elections are soon. How soon? Uh, December twenty fourth, I believe. Oh, Christmas Eve. Well, Merry Christmas, Libya. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure a very small percentage of the population celebrates it. But uh, I mean, 
I mean, he has ICC charges against him, right? Is that correct? Well, they're seeking to bring him in front of the ICC to then pursue and investigate. But yes, there are, I mean, ICC charges for war crimes. Do you know anything about, like, is there any favorite for in terms of political parties, in terms of leaders? What can we sort of expect? Or can we expect anything? Yeah, so there's there was an agreement last year where the, we had this new government of, it's called the Government of National Unity, headed by Abdul Hamid Daibda, uh, this this basically a three-member presidential council headed by this other guy, Mohammed Al-Menfi, and they're trying to create and build up these institutions to prepare for elections. Because, I mean, that's the problem is reconstructing institutions that then hold elections. And so um, you have, you know, the parliaments who tried to pass this electoral law, but they were excluding other groups and then also led to the UN to intervene and there's, there's a lot of tensions, a lot of, again, as I said, stakeholders that are trying to balance this. And so um, at the current moment, I mean, it's really, really all up in the air because you have, I mean, the UN led movement, but you also have, uh, you know, the, the local kind of politics. And so, uh, I mean, I, 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 anyone else's guess is as good as mine as what's going to happen in Libya. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you never know. I mean, a Gaddafi can return to power. I mean, it seems like with some of these uh, flirtations with democracy that some of these Middle Eastern countries have had. Of course, we saw Afghanistan's democracy last for about a decade and a half, and now the Taliban's back in control. You saw all the protests against Mubarak in Egypt. You saw the democratically elected Muslim Brotherhood leader who was then thrown out. And then you saw a return to a military-style strongman leader. And now in Libya, you see a Gaddafi trying to come back to power. Isn't it interesting? The world is a fascinating place, Andre, and that's why I enjoy talking about it. Yeah, returning to equilibrium. <laughs> um, a couple more things uh, before we wrap today. So Russia is ending its diplomatic mission to NATO. Uh, it is withdrawing its personnel there and also withdrawing the credentials of NATO member country emissaries um, in there. Not the actual states, like they're still having diplomatic relations with all the member, the NATO members, but the actual NATO um, ambassadors that are in Moscow are going to be having their credentials revoked. And so uh, actually back in why? October, well, why? There's been a kind of a diplomatic tit for tat. So early in October, NATO ordered eight Russian diplomats out of, of Belgium, which is where NATO is headquartered, uh, because they were, you know, quote unquote, alleged undeclared intelligence officers, which is probably the case. It's probably, it's, I mean, it's quite likely that that's the case. And so, I mean, Russia with this small mission and the tensions being what they are, probably sees no reason to have a relationship with NATO. I mean, at the end of the day, like NATO was created in order to counter Russia. And so it's, I mean, it's always been interesting that they've had a diplomatic mission to NATO. It's of course always important for them to have some sort of diplomatic engagement, uh, but they, they aren't a cooperative or like cooperative relationship. It's not really the purpose of it. Um, and another kind of wrinkle on this is that on Thursday, Russia warned that if NATO were to try to work with Ukraine towards some sort of membership agreement, there would be severe consequences. And this came as uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in Kiev, um, who had talked to Volodymyr Zelensky about having Ukraine join uh, NATO through a membership track that has been on the table for years. But uh, given Russia's annexation of Crimea and the continuing war in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region, I mean, it'd be wary. I'd, I'd be wary of you know Ukraine embarking on this because things will will get very very dangerous very quickly 
because Russia will see that as a, a direct um, you know, threat towards them and may very well take action that could really just not only violate Ukraine's sovereignty, but cause, I mean, a huge loss of life. And so um, uh, interesting developments there. I'm not sure where, where Ukraine is going to do, uh, but Russia is, is you know, the signals are out there. That they're not messing around. Has Russia revoked uh, these diplomatic ties with NATO before? I don't believe, I don't think so. No, I think this is the first time. I mean, they've been, I mean, ever since Russia and, and NATO have had relations, which has been, I mean, for decades, I don't think this has ever happened, not to my knowledge. Hmm, very interesting, because I mean, Russia is really going through a hard time with COVID right now about... I think Putin just announced that, you know, everyone should take a week off because COVID cases are really skyrocketing. What's the state of the Russian economy? Is it doing good? It is. It's not doing. I mean, it's it's doing fine. Again, because it's a resource dependent economy and given the price of, of resources around the world, uh, it's doing OK. But if you're looking at a local level, the people are, are hurting. Price, everything's expensive. Jobs are difficult. COVID had a just a, a terrible effect. Uh, on, on the average Russian person and the Russian economy. And so, and also given U.S. sanctions and the fight over Nord Stream 2, this pipeline, um, it's not as bad as it's been, but it's certainly not good. And so that has puts pressure on the Kremlin. There's also, I mean, Navalny pressure and Belarus pressure. And I mean, even Afghanistan pressure because they're trying to, you know, figure out the regional geopolitics. Uh, Putin's not in a great place, but he's certainly still has a, a very hard grip on power. Yeah. Also, Ryan, I do want to note that in 2014, NATO actually suspended all cooperation, practical cooperation with Russia due During to the, the Ukraine crisis. Yeah. Gotcha. So, but apparently the NATO-Russia Council was not suspended. That was not suspended. And then uh, military cooperation was, I think, resumed sometime in uh, 2017. And now in 2021, we've seen Russia suspend. Uh, the diplomatic relations, the, the mission with NATO. So very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Anything else in your plate, Andre? No, not really. All right. Well, we do have some uh, fascinating episodes coming up this uh, next month, but we're just going to highlight can one. Can we announce? Okay. Just one. Can we, can we announce them? Oh, no. We'll one? keep it secret. Just one. What's coming out Monday? We have a great episode with Ambassador Elena B. Teplitz, the last episode in our miniseries Sri Lanka Debt, Development, and Democracy. Uh, the ambassador is very direct, very forthright, isn't that refreshing, about uh, her time in Sri Lanka, the U.S. government's views on Sri Lanka's uh, foreign policy, Sri Lanka's economy, Sri Lanka's politics. And we talk at length about uh, Sri Lanka-China relations and Sri Lanka-U.S. relations. And she is very upfront and honest about what she sees. So it's a very good episode, about an hour. And uh, yeah, that's what we have. And we have a great lineup uh, for November. Like I think probably one of our best lineups in a month in November. So stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for that. And as always, we'll see you next week. 